Hi, Gary here. On the Unlock Moment, we pride ourselves on bringing you powerful stories from inspirational people. And today's episode is one of the really great ones. We're also a bit obsessive about sound quality. And unfortunately, this recording has a lot more background noise than normal. We've edited out as much as possible, but with such an incredible guest telling such an important story that I know will resonate with so many of you, we decided to go ahead and publish despite the background noise. Thanks for bearing with us on this one. It'll be worth it. Hope you enjoy this latest episode of The Unlock Moment. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The Unlock Moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, These are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Last year, it was my great pleasure to speak at CarFest, a huge summer festival here in the UK where the Health and Wellbeing Zone SpaFest brought together many leading lights in the areas of holistic well-being, mindfulness, and the general pursuit of happiness. And twas there that I met the force of nature that is Donna Easton. Donna is a joyologist, a performer, a presenter, and the creator of Joyology, a highly sought-after speaker. Donna's work can be found on TV, radio, and she's written for national press, including Hello Magazine, Stylist, and The Express newspaper. Donna helps individuals, entrepreneurs, and businesses reframe mindsets and shift how we show up each day to reconnect with the real us. Donna has hosted stages and delivered talks at events across the UK including CarFest, Camp Festival, Mind Body Spirit Festival, Latitude, and Move It, and has delivered keynotes for organizations such as Google, Mars, and Holland and Barrett. She helps people reconnect with themselves, find their joy, and maximize success in their lives and careers. After a pretty challenging 2023, I think we all need a bit more joy in our lives, and I'm looking forward to hearing Donna's take on how to reconnect with our best selves through the power of joyology. And of course, I'm curious to learn about the unlocked moments of remarkable clarity that shaped her own life's journey. Donna Easton, it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Oh, it's my utter pleasure and pure joy to be here, Gary. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thanks so much for accepting the invitation. So Donna, today we can find you on major stages bringing the joyology. But if we really wanted to understand the person you are today... Where would we need to start in your story? I think probably pretty near the beginning. Um, (laughs) Don't worry, I won't take you through all 48 years of my life. That would be a long podcast. (laughs) But but fairly near the beginning. I think there there was definitely, there was a me that was, excited and a show off and silly and fun and then bit by bit that there are a few things in my life that I think were kind of 
I suppose, catalyst to this, but kind of bit by bit, by the time I got to secondary school, I, I'd lost all of that, really. I had become quite embarrassed and shy. And I think a lot of it was to do with, with how I looked. It was, I got, you know, shouted at like goofy teeth across the road by boys in my neighborhood. And um, so there was a lot of consciousness around my face, around my body. I remember when I was very little running around in the garden and a friend of my dad saying, oh Christ, she's put on a bit of weight, isn't she? And I remember that for the first time being aware of my body and being aware of how I looked and being embarrassed about it, I think. Not just awareness, but like this shame that was that was kind of ladled on me at that moment. And so and so I suppose there these these kind of throwaway comments that that systematically kind of dismantled the fun and outgoing and show off and performer that I was. So yeah, we're kind of right back there. And it's interesting, isn't it? I can I can hear in the way you're describing that. You can remember quite specific things that individual people said. And it's very common when you when you talk to people who've been through a similar kind of journey. They'll say, one person said one thing to me once, and that stayed with me for a really long time. And of course, for that other person, might have been a complete throwaway comment. They might have forgotten about it five minutes later. And for you, 10, 20, 30 years later, you're still remembering that thing that they said. Yeah, and I think it. the, the interesting thing as well is is how we remember those things. I think I remember there was an instance in my early 20s where I turned up at a party and a friend's dad called across the room as I walked in. My God, Donna Easton's put on a bit of weight. Like a very similar comment to when I was very little. But in my mind, I imagine the entire party turning round, the band stopping... (laughs) You know, like, and in reality, that didn't happen. But but that's it. It, it feels so so seminal, and like catastrophic in my mind that that I remember it filmically as opposed to in reality what it looked like. I remember it filmically. That's very interesting. Often, when people talk about unlock moments of remarkable clarity, and you might say some of these are, are like that, you know, you, you remember exactly where you were, you remember that, that moment in, in that kind of way. And those are, those are moments that, that shape, for better or for worse, people's life journeys. What happened to you? What was the impact of, of that shift from the joyful, fun girl to the person that was more anxious and more mindful of these kind of comments and all of that? What was the impact on you? I stopped going to drama classes, I was terrified that I'd be asked to stand up on a stage at school and deliver some kind of public speaking. I'd be, I was so nervous about, about showcasing who I was really. That's the, that's the, and yeah, I can feel that like emotion now, like kind of going, so it's kind of, it's right there still. And and I just, I just remember it being, I just wasn't myself. And so I, I like a performer, like a chameleon. I just, 
acted how I thought everyone else wanted me to to act and behave. And 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 interestingly, that that is a lot of my life. I look at when I was in the corporate world, I was a chameleon there. I acted as though I want how I wanted everyone, how I thought everyone wanted me to act when I was you know, I'm sort of mum at the school gate, like, how's that meant to look? And actually, now I realise that it's not meant to look like anything. It's meant to look like me. But, um, but it's, it's been a journey. It's been a, it's been a long journey. Mm. And you think about, you know, when you first said chameleon, and I thought, you know, changes its look, changes its colour on demand. But then I thought, blends into the background. Actually, the, you know, the reason for changing color is like an octopus does the same thing. It's sort of to blend into the background. And did you feel that that was what you were trying to do in conforming? Absolutely. I, the pain of being picked out and yelled at across the street with kind of, you know, um, oh, Donna's a horse. I remember like the, the boy, there was a group of boys that called me a horse constantly and like the pain of that, I just wanted to disappear. I remember I grew my hair into a bob so that I'd like, I, when I was sitting on the bus coming home from school, I could, you know, pull my hair down over my face really so nobody would see my face. And so they wouldn't comment on the repulsiveness that they might have been presented with at that moment. Like that's how how much I was hiding. And you know, the, the words people use are so powerful. And, you know, repulsiveness there is a word that, you know, that's what it felt like to you. And again, you know, maybe those other people did absolutely want you to feel that way. Maybe they had no idea that's how it made you feel. Maybe it was a throwaway comment. Maybe it was something they meant it to have some kind of long-term impact. But we all experience what's in our world, what's in our domain. And there's comments that people are making to you and making you feel some very visceral feelings as you say even right now you know many many years on you're feeling them now you know it's 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 an emotional thing yeah and you became a mum i certainly did yes and how how did it change your perception oh my goodness um so my little girl's only eight right now so we're we're very much on that that journey which is just it's just so beautiful. And I'm, I'm incredibly mindful and have always been incredibly mindful not to, not to plant these, these seeds about the, the value in the way that we look. And so, you know, like when I'm brushing her hair, I don't say, oh, mummy's making you look pretty. So she's like, I kind of say, oh, let's get those tangles out. They're a bit they're a bit tricky, aren't they? I just, I, I, I'm, I'm really aware that that's something that I don't want to impart on, on her. And I'm, I've told people around me, you know, there was an instance where a member of the family said when she was eating, she was very, very little. And they went, Oh, I can see where you're putting all that and like prodded her tummy. And I was like, Nope, like absolutely not. And so i I'm mindful with, and I've asked people around us to be mindful about not to talk about, not to look in the mirror at themselves in front of my little girl and like bulk at their figure and bulk that they've put on a few pounds after Christmas. Like for me, because 
it, you know, I'm sure we'll come on to it. Like it, for me, it resulted in like massively disordered eating, had bulimia for years. And so for me, that's really, it's really critical for me. And even it's funny because even when I tell my little girl stories and even when she was very, very small, you know, I'd read the book Cinderella and I would get to the end and I would say, you know, and the prince thought she was beautiful. And when they got chatting, the prince also found out that Cinderella was very, very funny and very smart. And I added like my own bits on because I just couldn't bear that that was the only reason she was chosen by the prince. And so I'm hoping that I'm like mending <laughs> things that from when I was little, I found so life-shaping. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I remember reading recently, somebody was rewriting Sleeping Beauty because they said, it's not okay to kiss a sleeping girl and hope <laughs> they're going to fall in love with you. It's, it's you know. <laughs> um, your daughter is at the heart of your unlock moment. Tell me about what happened when you took her to a dance class. Mm. So Gary, she must have been a three. And so bear in mind, I've grown up like in the performing arts space. I've been a performer. Um, even in my corporate job, I was working in dance and performing arts, um, kind of on the corporate side, but I was still in that world. And so taking Primrose, my little girl, to, to this dance and, and drama class just felt beautiful. So we were there and they did that, that thing where, I mean, we've seen them. It's that classic image of, you know, 12 little girls, no boys, interestingly, um, 12 little girls standing in a circle, all wearing like their little pink tutus and leotards and their little ballet shoes. And they're all standing in that circle doing these kind of, to like plinky plonky piano music. They're doing their like ding, 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 ding their little toes like pointing in and, and coming out. It's just like this beautiful imagery. Apart from my daughter, who wasn't in the circle, she was pulling herself around the floor, like, you know, didn't care that her pale, dusty pink costume was getting, you know, smothered in the dust of the, of the church hall. Like round and round she goes calling out at the top of her voice, I'm a slippery slug. And just going, and that's what she did for the whole time. So I was with my mum actually, and the parents had to stand behind like a, a door to watch. And we were behind this curtain and my mum and I were crying with laughter. We just thought it was blooming wonderful. We just, it was just something that was so, ah, oh, it, it it just summed up Primrose. It kind of summed up our family. It summed up me. It was just this moment of like, of, of gorgeousness. And I loved it. I just thought it was the best thing I'd ever seen. Anyway, as Prim was coming out, she was just so pleased with herself and it had the time of her life. Like she had the best lesson she'd ever had. And as we were leaving, the teacher said, oh, Primrose, I have to say no more slugs next week. No more slugs. And Prim just kind of looked and just looked utterly crestfallen, really. She was just, she was, she wasn't quite sure why she'd been 
told off. All she'd seen is a kind of vast expanse of space and decided to be a slug because that's what three-year-olds do. They want to do whatever they want to do. And there's me thinking, oh my God, she's got plenty of time to like answer, like to, to, to stick to rules. You know, when you're three, be a slug. And it was that moment that I just kind of, I hadn't really realized the great impact of it at that moment. But actually, I think that's, that's what was the catalyst to this. It was this kind of, oh, why do we have to always be the conformist one in the center of the circle? And why is it, why do we get chastised for breaking out of that circle and slithering around on our stomachs like a slug? And it, and honestly, that was that was the the catalyst for for all of this. It started. It looked when I started, it looked a bit different, but but definitely that was the catalyst. And so many conversations I'm having with people today, whether they are ordinary people living extraordinary lives or maybe they're senior leaders, there's this theme now that comes through about bringing yourself, bringing yourself in its uniqueness and all your strengths and weaknesses, bringing it all to the table and just finding more ways to be us, to be uniquely us. And the data for, says that the people that do that are happier and healthier and less likely to have health issues in future and more likely to stick around in their jobs, more likely to want to go above and beyond and all this kind of thing. And the thing that you describe, you know, that image of your three-year-old dancing as a slug rather than dancing as a prima ballerina, maybe contemporary dance is more her thing than, than ballet, <laughs> I get that. Um, but it, but it just epitomizes that whole idea of it is okay. It is okay to be different and, and different, not different from a norm that we're all supposed really to be, but it's okay for us all to be individually unique. You know, Absolutely. and there isn't, there isn't like a group that you go, well, it's okay to not be that group. It's, you know, we are all unique in many, many different ways, whether that's gender or height or um, sexuality or you know, what we love to do or where we live or whatever it is, we're just different people, you know. And, and, isn't, and isn't that just the most beautiful thing about human beings? The, the, and and what's, what I found, I suppose, after from doing the work that I've been doing is this, the, the interesting nature of what we put our value on as, as society. So this kind of value that sits on the, right from school, the value on of maths is much higher than the value of a, a, an artwork or painting that you might do at school. Like the, and, and, and there it starts and on it goes. And so we, the value in that room at that moment was the conformist ballerina. It was, there's, there's stuff about, about gender there. There's stuff about, um, what it is to be a girl. There's stuff about, you know, like, oh no, girls don't do stuff like that. Girls have to stand in, in, in the, in the circle formation and look pretty. You don't slather around on your, slither around on your stomach getting dusty. Like that's not what little girls do. And, and for me, it just, it's, it's all a load of rubbish. Isn't it interesting? And, but as, as you said before about things you're pointing out to people around you, you know, who, who your, your daughter is exposed to, that 
on occasion, people might be doing those things intentionally or even maliciously, but actually very often it's just we're all conditioned because we've all grown up in this environment where we were shaped by what's around us. And we do, we've grown up in an environment where boys play with trains and girls play with dolls and there aren't boys in the dance class. You know, when I was four years old and I first went to a ballroom dancing class, I was one of the only boys in that dance class. There's a little picture of me uh, with my bronze medal at the age of four or five. And it was, it's probably even more unusual now, actually, than, than it was then. It depends a bit on the, the mindset of the school. But I think what you bring to life really brilliantly is, is how much you've actually got to think intentionally of what are our subtle biases that might come through, not because we're, we're trying to be difficult or awkward or, or, or providing the wrong kind of framing for young, young people, but you just, it's that inadvertent impact. And I, and I think again about your own story you were talking about earlier, somebody said a thing, which lots of people say stuff that's hurtful to other people. Sometimes it's deeply malicious. Sometimes it, it isn't so much, you know, but the impact is so long lasting. Yeah, it's very interesting to see the connection between what you're saying about your own journey and then what you're seeing for your daughter too. Absolutely. And I think um, for me, in my 20s, I was, when I was working, um, I had a, a, in inverted commas, normal job. I'd always had this kind of yearning to perform. I went and auditioned for a show they offered me the roles. They offered me the role, I think, on Thursday. By the Tuesday, most of my hair had fallen out. And so so that then resulted in this kind of, not only to have these moments when I was little that kind of added pressure to the value around how we look, like as a, as a, then as an adult in my, in my, yeah, a young adult, I had to then... I was faced like right in my face about the value of how you look like, right, we're going to, it's going to take all your hair away and see what happens to like, will you, will you like, you know, I was meant to be going on stage with in front of thousands of people every night, thousands, hundreds, um, hundreds of people every night. And, um, and I had to wear a wig. Like I remember like getting home, pulling off this wig, this kind of, because it was, it was awful and I hated it. And I was, you know, I went through this, this awful journey of self-loathing and I couldn't look at myself in the mirror, couldn't say the word alopecia, couldn't, you know, if my mum would see something on the TV with someone talking about hair loss and would send it through to me, I'd be like, I don't want to see that. No, 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 no. It was total denial that that was me and my life. Um, my hair all grew back, but then uh, about, six, eight months after I had my daughter, it all fell out again and it's never grown back. It hasn't grown back yet. And so now I kind of wear, wear wigs all the time, wear different wigs. And, um, and that's how I kind of, that's what I do now. And I, and I actually love wig life and I'm not entirely sure what I would do if my hair did all grow back actually, because I'm quite like, I'm quite into this, but, um, but, but the interesting thing there, and you, you mentioned about that kind of, about the society stuff, you know, I had to reshape and reframe in my mind for my brain what beauty and a valuable human being looks like in the mirror. 
And I did that by, you know, staring at myself in the mirror without a wig. And then I'd wink at myself. Then I'd be like, you know, I didn't believe myself at first at all. Thought I was, you know, nuts and also thought I was, it felt like a lie. But little by little by little, I started believing myself. I started believing that I look good. And I I started seeing something else. I started seeing something that was my definition of what beautiful and valuable looks like and not what the world has told us what valuable and beautiful looks like, right? And of course, I follow like loads of women with alopecia on on Instagram and 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 they're women that like, you know, they a lot of those women walk around without wigs on, like they're like rocking bald living. And actually what that's done is that started to like reshape in my mind what beautiful women look like because daily I see beautiful women with no hair. So so it's it's retrained my my brain. It's amazing that story of, you know, when you first experienced alopecia and how quickly that happened. Before that moment, when that happened, had you had any hair loss before? It was from from never having experienced it to over a matter of days you lost yes. your hair. Yeah, there was, one, there was one time where in the hairdressers, I used to get my hairdresser hair cut by... Um, a guy I used to know and he was like Don's you've got like a tiny little patch here on the back of your head and that that that, so that was once and that was probably about I don't know five or six years before it happened I remember like oh really and and that was it I just thought that I'd pulled it out or something um but that was the only thing and then then nothing and then literally it was like falling out in clumps and (laughs) you know there's a there's an interesting thing there around I wasn't I wasn't particularly happy in my job I got offered my dream job but there was a there was a cost to me to that and I think um yeah I had to unravel that in the in the years years that um that came like to, to to tell myself that it's safe to have things that are beautiful and what I want to do. So like leaving my job and becoming a joyologist, like I had to constantly reassure myself that that was safe to do, like waiting for like the other shoe to drop thing. (laughs) Don't remember what happens when you get what you want. Bad stuff happens when you get what you want, you know. And I think there's a really important message in there because often we look at the people that we perceive to be happy. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not but we have a perception that they are. And sometimes we look at those people and we assume that they've had some kind of gilded journey or they've been super lucky or they were always happy. And actually, you know, something you're bringing to life really powerfully is that, you know, there's a route to, you know, a journey around happiness. Maybe nobody ever gets to the end of that journey. You can tell me about that in a minute. But it's work and it's work and you have to work on yourself and you have to go deep, you know, and I, I talk to a lot of people when I, when I go into organizations or, I, or I, I talk about the power of the unlocked moment, and it is the connection between what is that story and what does that tell you really at a very deep level about who you are today and, and why you do what you do. 
it can be emotional. It can be hard. You have to go to some difficult places and you, and, and I'm deeply grateful to you being so open here for, for our listeners about the journey you've been on and, and, and some of those kind of challenges. Tell me about joyology, where this came from, what it is, and, and what people should be taking from it. So the, the dance class that I, that I spoke about was probably about six months before we locked down. Then, so that kind of had given me this, this I suppose, this kernel of an idea about what does what does a kind of non-conformist life look like? That's kind of the kernel of the idea I had. And it was kind of really initially thinking about children, like how that we, we, you know, we, from, from a very young age, we move them from desk to desk to desk and they just get older and older. And then, you know, we go through all of that schooling. And then when we come back, get spat out the other end, we get presented with, a desk and so it's kind of it's like wah, wah, wah. and it, and it, 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 so it kind of it, it's always boggled my brain this kind of how we adult how we how we behave as grown-ups and um and what the perception of grown-up is so that was kind of this kernel of this of the idea and then we um then covid came and we locked down and because i was working in um live events at the time I got furloughed pretty much instantly and, um, and it was very, so I'm a single mum. So it was just Primrose and I in the house. And I, I saw very, a very stark choice in front of me. I saw that I could allow the narrative of outside in, or I could choose a narrative and believe what we could see in front of our eyes instead of believing what we see on here or on our TV, right? And so, yes, I was frightened and yes, the world was going crazy. And yes, you know, there was mum's group saying, oh, there's, I think there are army tanks moving into, you know, everyone was going nuts and it was, it was horrible. And yet I had to keep reminding myself what I could see out of the window each morning. And that was that, you know, the pigeons were still flying around and, you know, I was waving at the neighbour across the road and Primrose and I were, it, the sun was shining and the flowers were still doing their thing. And like, what's the, like the reality of it? I had to keep reminding myself. And so I banned the news from my house. I banned, I stopped myself looking at the awful toll of the kind of, I was looking at daily death counts with no, I think we all did, you know, with no real, um, with no measure, no gauge of what that <laughs> means, right? Just seeing these numbers that looked massive, but with no real idea of how many people normally died in that in a day, you know, like, so it was this kind of, all this stuff that I was being bombarded by. So I just stopped myself doing it. I went on Amazon, ordered disco balls. I ordered a karaoke machine. I bought an amp. I bought disco lights. I bought craft materials. I bought art supplies. And I just filled our house with stuff. We had like daily discos. We, I started, I started doing all the things that I loved doing. I started singing. I started, we started dancing every day. We started drawing. We started painting. We were cooking. We were doing all those things that lots of us turned to in those lockdown weeks and months. But what I realized was, was that 
not only was it making Primrose excited to have her mum around and she wasn't at school and we were, you know, making fun stuff all day, but actually it was just nourishing me. I was getting excited. I was like, oh my God, I'd forgotten how much I love doing this. And and I started remembering that you didn't have to give a monkeys what people thought all the time. You could, when we, you know, we'd run around and we'd both sing songs going down the road on Primrose's scooter and we'd both, like, we just would have fun, right? It was fun. And I, when I look back at those days, yes, there was like this underlined horribleness that COVID kind of gave us. But actually, I look back at it and smile because it was just absolutely beautiful. It was these days where we were just doing beautiful things. And it reminded me who I am. And it reminded me that I'm a creative being and I like to be a silly sod and I like to have fun and do all that kind of stuff. And so I then just became obsessed with happiness, became obsessed with joy and started looking at what do the, what do the happiest people do? What, what is that? What's that non-conformist life look like? Do we have to adult in the way that society tells us we have to adult? No. Um, and so, and so, yeah, that was the, the birth of my business and of this new, this new life. That's really interesting. And again, the thing that I hear is, you know, if you went up to somebody and said, I'm going to tell you about a thing called joyology, they're going to imagine, you know, sparkles and glitter and <laughs> singing and whatever and dancing and great. But when you describe this, it's much deeper. It's much more powerful than that. It comes from a place that is a big and dare I say, heavy place, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a fluffy thing. It's a powerful thing. Um, and, and I see in that, that it is a thing with real impact because of where it's come from, because of the journey you've been on and continue to be on. And I think that's really interesting. So you said how the happiest people live their lives. And I often talk on this podcast about the idea of the, the books that I don't like are the books that are if you eat the breakfast I eat, you two will become a millionaire. Those <laughs> books, you know what I mean? Um, but I do really like people talking about what are things that you can learn from and adapt into your own life in a way that works for you. So what have you learned in looking at and trying to understand the people who really are happy? I mean, the first, I guess, first question is, what is happy? When you say these people are really happy, what, what do you mean? What do you see? The interesting thing about about happiness is so many of us, and I used to be that person, saw it as a destination. When I have that job, I will be happy. When I marry the man of my dreams, I will be happy. When I, when I, when I, there's always an over-thereness to happiness. How I feel now is that life can throw stuff at me. It will, and it does. And I feel those things. And some days I will not be a joyologist at all. And yet underneath all of that, there's this kind of base level of contentment of who I am and what I'm, what I'm doing, what I'm giving out there to the, to the world. 
there's purpose attached to that, Gary, and understanding that if I'm living a life that is when I lay in bed at night, I know that I've done good stuff. That makes me happy. It, it sits and it, it aligns with the value system that I that I have in my soul. There's and and, and I say soul because also there's <laughs> we know our kind of we know our hierarchy of needs. We know we need our food and we know we need our comfort. All that kind of stuff, right? And on this business journey, sometimes those needs haven't been met actually. And so it does like, it has flung me off balance when it's been lean, shall we say, when, you know, starting out and kind of getting this stuff off the ground. And as a single parent with a single income family, that's, you know, the buck stops right there. And, and yet, and yet, (laughs) there's never been a moment that I've thought, ah, you know, there's must be easier ways to make a, make money than this. Like then there's got to be an easier, easier way to do it. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't factor anymore because I realized that this is what I'm meant to be doing. And I think that's what I've learned from people that I've met in my life that are happy. They're doing the thing that makes them feel like them. It gives them that, the fuzzies. And I'm so, I'm so touched and grateful that you kind of said that about the kind of glitter and the, and the fuzziness as well, because actually it is so much more than that because some one person's joy might be sticking on Madonna and covering themselves in glitter and whatever, like that might look like that. And that's beautiful. But another person's joy might be sitting next to a tree. Someone else's joy might be being with their family. Someone else's joy might be baking a cake. Someone else's joy, like it's all subjective and it's all valid. And so the thought that I could ever impose my idea of joy on somebody, which yes, you know, newsflash is listening to 80s Madonna, but I know for a fact that that's not that's not everybody's. It's about finding your own joy. It's really powerful. And I remember a conversation with Dr. Marshall Goldsmith on the Unlock Moment in around about episode 32, something like that. And he's written a book quite recently called The Earned Life. And it is his reflection back on a, a, on a long life of happiness. And he talks about this story of Buddha, where he said, you know, Buddha went out into the world and tried to find happiness by getting more. And he found that didn't make him happy at all. And then he tried to go out in the world and be happy by having less. And that didn't work either. And he said, there's only one thing that makes you happy, what you have. There's only one place you can be happy here. There's only one time you can be happy now. And the people that I talk to who are on a search for happiness by trying to eat the right breakfast or do the right meditation exercises or play around with mindfulness. And and it's like, they don't quite get it, actually. They're trying to follow a routine. In a dance metaphor, we might say, do the choreography of happiness. And then they go, surprise, surprise, I'm not happy. In the same way that if I point my foot to the right, point my foot to the front, that doesn't make me Mikhail Baryshnikov. It just doesn't, (laughs) you know? 
that there is an industry of people that have sold many, many more books than, than I have, where it's like these recipe books and they literally go, you should, well, you're just having the wrong smoothie for breakfast. And I'm like, it's not in the smoothie. It's just not in the smoothie. So when you, when you look at these people where they found this fulfilling happiness or in the, they're on this journey to a life I love, a life that is connected to what's important to me, connected to a sense of purpose. What are the things that they are doing that genuinely you think other people can learn from and apply into their own lives? What does that look like? They are, in the same way that I do, doing the things that bring them comfort and joy. So I think a lot joy can often be seen as this kind of high vibe state. And actually, if we talk about comfort and joy, you could kind of, I can, I can, joy can like be a wry smile. Joy can be a kind of a moment of pleasure. Like it's, it's, it's so, it doesn't have to be this nightclub joy or this kind of glitter party joy, as you said earlier. They're doing the things that make them happy whether that's being with people that make them feel happier. I find that a lot of people that the happiest people that I know seem to have a network of like-minded thinkers and they either minimize their time with people that are, and I'm not saying that we don't want to hang around with people that don't think like us, but, but in a way that at least we're coming from a, from a place that's good, I think, is, is kind of what I'm saying. So surrounding themselves with people that are coming from, from a, the same place that can let you know honestly what you're doing beautifully. And you have these kind of conversations. My partner and I call it, you know, like we say, like, like we don't want to leave any straggling, any straggly ends. You know, you kind of, you want to just like, is everything good here? Are we good? Like everything's, we're okay. No, that, that, you know, when you said that, like, let's, let's talk about that a minute. Okay. So like straggly end, like we've cleared up the straggly end. And so communicating, communicating honestly, but with love and kindness, I think, yeah. And doing things for other people, a lot of people that, that seem to be the happiest people work and do things with other people and that, that are helping other people, not necessarily as a job, but just who they are. They might chat to people in the village that, you know, they walk down in the morning. They might, they're just doing things that, that light up their soul, dare I say. They light up who they are. If you're listening to this on audio in your favourite podcast platform, and please follow us if you do, but you won't be able to see Donna. And so I can tell you in watching Donna when she's talking about this stuff, how authentic this is, how real this is for her. And there are people that sometimes I talk to where they've got a mantra and they've got a framework. And what they do is they tell people about this thing that they figured out. And I find it fascinating talking to people who've, who are building something, but they're also still sort of figuring it out in the moments and talking in such a powerful way from their own experience and you're not saying something because because that's the framework you're not saying something because that's the mnemonic you know you're saying that because it's real to you and I really appreciate that in, in what you're saying 
for the people who are listening here who are leaders in work or leaders in life or just in pursuit of happiness, what's one thing you'd really like them to take away from this conversation? <sighs> that is a, a beautiful question. And for somebody that's worked in the corporate world, albeit in kind of media and events, there's such a there's still that mismatch, I think, within businesses around what's valuable to leaders. I feel that a society, there's a mismatch in what's valuable. And so we have the extroverted, charismatic salesperson bringing in X amount of thousands a month who seems to be lauded and applauded much more than somebody who's the introverted tech engineer that's kind of quietly, diligently keeping the back office going and, and ticking over. And, and so our society tells us that that extroverted person is the one that holds all of the value. A lot of the time, financially, we look at our society and we see these kind of incredible people kind of holding holding our world together, nurses and doctors and cleaners and firefighters. And, you know, all of those, those, those amazing people keeping our world together and our society together. And yet there, and yet there's, there's a, there's a kind of money making sort of swathe of society that seems to, that seems to have been given all of the value. And I don't just mean financial value. I mean, also social value. And so, and so anyone that's a leader is to remember that everybody that walks into your office in the morning, whether they are the head of accounts, the head of sales, the commercial director, the admin assistant, the office manager, the, the cleaner, like whoever they are that have got out of their beds, got on the train, got on a bus to come to work, they're coming to work to keep that bit of society and of the world ticking beautifully and so every single one of those people has equal value and should be treated with equal love care and affection and we're all human beings and we all just want to be loved and so yeah that's what I would remind leaders powerful stuff the question that I'm starting to ask people recently on, on the podcast and that is what, if anything, do you understand more clearly having had this conversation today? There's definitely, there's definitely a few links that I hadn't made about my past and how that affects what I'm putting out into the world and why I'm so passionate and so driven to put this out into the world. I think if I think right back to the very beginning of this conversation about the, you know, me running around as a four-year-old me, you know, in my shorts and vest and being like commented on about my, about my body, actually right the way up to now, that journey could only have played, it's, only, it's, it's all mine and it could only have played out in this way. And so, and so I thank you for that because that's pretty beautiful to have that reminder so thank you how can people find out more about you and the work that you do 
You find me on mylifeshines.com and I'm all over social media as My Life Shines. So, and on LinkedIn, Donna Easton, joyologist. So yeah, I work with individuals. I work with businesses. I work with entrepreneurs and I know that joy and happiness is not a nice to have. Joy and happiness are essential for, for living a fulfilling and successful and beautiful life. And I know from this conversation how good you are at it as well. So I encourage people to listen to this, to reach out and connect with you and find out whether there's a way to work together. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For performer, presenter and founder of Joyology, Donna Easton, it was the dance class with her daughter being a slippery slug amongst the ballet tutus, where she suddenly realized that it's okay not to conform and it sparked passion for helping others to break the rules and find their authenticity and happiness. Discover Joyology, unlock your joy, unblock your life at mylifeshines.com. Donna, it's been a real joy to have you on. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Unlock Moment. Thank you. It has been absolutely gorgeous. If you've taken something from this conversation with a person who's turned personal challenge into inspirational action, then check out episode 108 with cancer survivor Oa Hackett, who founded her charity Little Lifts to help others going through the cancer treatment journey. And if you resonated with someone searching for how to find a deep and profound joy in life, then check out episode 36 with the world's number one executive coach, Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, on his transformational happiness philosophy called The Earned Life. And episode one with actor Samuel Horton, on making a choice to intentionally pursue happiness. Also find episode 126, where Sam came back to talk to me about what happened next. Bookmark these episodes for later. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.